afternoon. Uh, I want to welcome you to what I guess is the second Woodrow Wilson Town Meeting on terrorism and our responses to it. Uh, what I would like mostly to come out of this event is the feeling that, which I believe to be true, that uh, this is a community that in troubled times values analysis and reflection and that we'll, we have experts among us who can help us uh, think through what are very new and very troubling questions. Uh, with that, let me just introduce our panel. Uh, our first speaker is Paul Krugman, who needs no introduction except perhaps to Maureen Dowd. Uh, I've had dinner with her that I was offering. Uh, and Paul is, you know, is first and foremost a professor of economics and public affairs, international affairs at Princeton, also a well-known economist, and as his other full-time job, a columnist from the New York Times, for the New York Times. Uh, we're very lucky to have two mid-career students, MPP students from the school with us, whose recent job responsibilities have directly involved them in the issues we face today. George Sibley is a Foreign Service officer who's worked widely in the world, particularly in the Mideast and the Islamic world. He, his most recent foreign assignment was in Amman, Jordan, and he has been the Iran desk officer. Kevin Lindsay is a career CIA officer with a wide experience in the Middle East in dealing with terrorism. Josh Tucker is an assistant professor of politics and international affairs whose particular area of expertise is uh, Central Europe uh, East Central Europe and the formal former Soviet Union. Uh, and with that, I'm going to introduce our panel, who all will speak briefly. Paul, will you start? This is wild stuff, uh, you know, quite aside from the tragedy. It just um, plunges anyone who was thinking about the economy into uh, 
a bizarre place we didn't expect to be. And uh, I think the the thing that, that I'm doing, and I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to uh, sort out, is, is figure out what, what's the right metaphor, what's, what's the parallel, what, what are we looking for for comparison. And it takes a little while, uh, I think we're still trying to sort of through it. Um, from my point of view, just from my professional uh, angle on it, um, the war uh, metaphor is a very bad one. And it turns out that you know, whatever else it may be, it, it's, it, it looks economically only a little like what we expect from a war. Uh, the, the, uh, the increases in military spending are going to be significant, but not the kind of thing. They're not like, uh, well, if people use the Pearl Harbor analogy, after in fiscal 42, first uh, post Pearl Harbor fiscal year, um, the uh, U.S. government had a deficit of 30% of GDP. Uh, that's, that's obviously not going to happen this time. So, um, And in terms of what's happening right now, which is happening very rapidly and fluidly, um, it's the closest analogy I'd say is actually Asian financial crisis. Uh, I, I'm, I'm reaching for metaphors, and I think we look in some ways like South Korea in, in 1998 more than we do like, uh, like any normal wartime experience. Uh, confidence, uh, consumer spending, uh, speculation. Uh, and some of this sounds like a column that you see in the paper on Sunday. It might have written Jay. I don't know what's about Jay. The other um, wild rumors, which may be true, but not confirmed about uh, short selling in advance of the attack. What's definitely true is there's large scale short selling uh, going on in the markets right now. So, one of the things that we're going to have to cope with eventually is the fact that a few people are getting a lot of money out of this tragedy in the last five days. Um, it's, uh, it's a crazy situation. And I'm not, I, I don't even begin to think I know the answers. Uh, I think that the most important thing uh, in terms of policy is. Uh, is don't do anything that's going to have repercussions fiscally uh, beyond uh, the next fiscal year because we, we couldn't very well make some. Uh, we're going to make a lot of short term decisions that we regret, that's for sure. Uh, we should try to avoid locking ourselves into any long term decisions that we would regret. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, as a Foreign Service officer, I have to start off with a little disclaimer, and that is that the views I'm expressing are purely my personal views and in no way, shape, or form represent government policy. Uh, that said, very briefly, I'm going to go through a few ideas. Uh, starting with the question about the war on terrorism, uh, if you listen to the pundits uh, and even some people in government today, it makes it sound like this is something new, and it obviously is not. Uh, there have been a lot of time, a lot of uh, very sharp minds, plenty of resources that have been uh, devoted to this up until now. And uh, uh, nonetheless, you have the event that we had on Tuesday last. Um, what is different this time, I think you'd say, is that uh, it's uh, so different in degree as to be different in kind. Um, but there are a lot of the elements that you can see here, for example, uh, in the Bombings of the, the two embassies in Africa, where you have obviously a very um, carefully planned and well coordinated event. Um, and here again, we see that uh, indicator. Um, now, I'm going to stick my neck out a little bit on a prediction here, and I will predict that uh, you will not see a commercial airliner again used in this manner. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a one timer. Uh, I think the uh, Procedures available to uh, uh, ensure aircraft security are fairly simple and relative to the range of things that we're talking about doing in terms.
danger that, that always happens is that we fight the last war and spending enormous resources to protect against this event, uh, which in fact is unlikely ever to happen again, maybe it's missing other events. So I sincerely hope that there are people thinking very creatively about what the other dangers are and what the other uh, means to combat those dangers. And clearly near the top of the list uh, for, the, for these would be uh, unconventional attacks in nuclear chemical biological. Uh, technically these are of course very difficult. Uh, it's uh, greatly oversimplified to, to, uh, when people say, well, you just put something in the water supply. This is, it's a very complicated The other thing I think we need to really protect ourselves against is ourselves. Uh, we are can-do people, and we believe that if something is broken, we can darn well fix it. And clearly this kind of a, a mindset is, is coming out now in, in our response. And uh, in my first comment, I suggested that uh, it's not as though these problems haven't been thought about and worked on already, and they are extremely intractable. And danger is that we may, uh, uh, as indicated, make some short-term decisions that in the long-term uh, may prove, uh, prove quite damaging. And uh, there's a real danger that we may be uh, motivating the next generation of terrorists uh, if we respond uh, overly aggressively as uh, maybe they were intended to do. And finally, looking at it from a somewhat diplomatic point of view, at the moment we have uh, a degree of worldwide sympathy greater in some ways than others, and uh, this is something that we can use to our advantage, uh, uh, provided that our own actions don't grow that rather rapidly. So uh, I, when I think of a model, I think of a bit more of uh, George Bush's father's uh, effort in patiently and gradually building a coalition uh, prior to the war. Uh, doesn't seem like that model so far is, is being applied as a Okay. Um, as Dean Rothschild said, I'm kind of lazy. I mean, uh, by day, I'm a clandestine operations officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. I still get the really saying that out loud. What I'm going to say, or stick to my own opinions, my, uh, and not necessarily those of the agency. My, uh, my information is dated. I returned from overseas back in May um, after two years following Bin Laden and various Middle Eastern terrorist organizations and have not seen hard data since then. I have no hard information on anything relating to the events of last week. Um, but I also want to caution that these that the idea of international terrorism, who these groups are and how they're organized, is still being intensely debated within the intelligence community. So again, keep all that in mind. Um, I've got a few, a few points to make. Let's Last Tuesday's suicide airline attack uh, was really only the most recent manifestation of increasing radicalization of several extremist Muslim groups and sects located throughout the world. Other recent examples of these kinds of attacks would include the suicide attack against the USS Cole in Eden Harbor, suicide truck bombing attacks, 
against U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, and two car bombings against U.S. military facilities in Saudi Arabia two years ago. These groups hate the United States for its unswerving support to Israel, particularly over the past year during the greatest suppression of the Palestinian Intifada, but also for U.S. military and diplomatic presence in the Muslim holy lands of Saudi Arabia. In this, many of these groups choose to follow the lead of Osama bin Laden, who is a very wealthy, charismatic leader, and his message to drive Christians and Jews out of the Persian Gulf enjoys a measure of support among the Muslim dispossessed. His terrorist methods of doing so, however, do not enjoy such support yet. Bin Laden, as you may know, bases his appeal solely on Wahhabi interpretation of the Quran. He makes no political manifesto. He urgency, makes no appeals for, for economic and social equality, makes no appeals to nationalism or racism. For this reason, he's the only Muslim terrorist leader who successfully recruited and inspired fighters from across ethnic, sectoral, linguistic, and class lines. Only in Bin Laden's Al-Qaeda organization do we see Asian Muslims fighting alongside Arabs, Afghans, and Africans, for instance. Further, despite what you may hear from the press, Bin Laden enjoys no regular state sponsorship. He doesn't need it, and few countries these days, Iran and Syria included, are any longer really in the business of supporting international terrorism. However, one thing to keep in mind was the choice of the Pentagon as a target last week. Um, the Pentagon is not really a Bin Laden-type target. He would much rather, much, we would have expected him to go after the White House or the Capitol Dome, as a more spectacular attack. Pure speculation, but the Pentagon is a bugaboo of Saddam Hussein's. And you want to keep that in mind when we read increasing whiffs of possible Iraqi involvement at some stage of the planning of this terrorist operation. Regardless, in the past, a lot of terrorist operations tend to be planned from the bottom up. That's to say that those who admire him, what he stands for will typically contact him with what is in essence a complete terrorist plan and fully staff offer. They need from him money, some help and some advice, and a blessing. That's a blessing. And this is what I suspect we saw last week, was essentially a homegrown terrorist operation, which then perhaps involved in law only at the end. And again, I caution some pure speculation on my part. But I can go into more detail on how such operation may have evolved if you like later. The fact that these operations are all planned locally without any central involvement to them makes detecting them almost, almost impossible in a free society like the United States. We are seeing the pace of radicalization among these groups increasing the way of Israeli actions against the Palestinian Intifada, in which CNN and others are for the first time showing live and truly atrocious pictures of the fighting. In effect, what they're doing is they're bringing Intifada for the first time into the homes of Muslims around the world, many of whom are suddenly feeling the urge to do something about this. Given the polarizing nature of Intifada and our uncritical support for Tel Aviv, we can expect as a country to remain a prime target for terrorists who either can't operate in a tight society like Israel, or who, by attacking us, hope to convince us to cease our support for Tel Aviv. CIA, FBI, and foreign intelligence security services will be able to stop the lion's share of these operations. We have, despite what you saw last week, we have quite a good record stopping and interdicting these operations, but we can't stop them all. The arrest and incarceration, I emphasize the arrest and incarceration of Bin Laden, 
as a criminal supporter in financier terrorist attacks. And again, I emphasize criminal supporter, not religious supporter or political supporter. We'll go a long way towards nipping much of this problem in the bud over the short run by removing a charismatic leader who has personal control over millions of dollars to be used in further such operations. However, the long-run solution will require us to decouple our foreign policy from that Israel, to recognize that Arabs, particularly Palestinians, have rights and real grievances which must be rejected, and in general by applying U.S. laws to justice to our foreign and security policies and regions. Until then, unfortunately, we will continue to alienate segments of the Muslim dispossessed, a small percentage of whom will be tempted to take action against us. Josh? Last night, President Bush gave a very powerful and moving speech to the nation. Amongst other things, it laid out the challenges our nation is facing in a very clear and stark manner. While this was obviously important for many reasons, it does not negate the fact that below the surface lie numerous complexities. In times like this, there's a strong temptation to unequivocally support one's government, one's president. Nevertheless, as policy analysts, it is our duty to resist this temptation and to continue to try to raise important questions. What the nation needs most of all right now is good policy. Policy that produces its intended goals while minimizing negative side effects. With this in mind, I'd like to make a few brief comments regarding what I see as some possible implications of our reaction to the tragedy last Tuesday. I turn first to the international front. There are obvious causes of action, uh, obvious consequences of actions in the international domain, vis-a-vis -vis those we antagonize, as has been stated by the other panelists. Less obvious, however, may be some of the consequences we have from those we befriend in this endeavor. What is the cost that we will pay in the future for friendship today? For instance, in Pakistan, we have pushed for a return to civilian government. Is that over? We have condemned a nuclear buildup. Is that over? Turning to an area I'm more familiar with, Russia. We have urged respect for human rights in Chechnya, albeit weakly. Is that over? Does that come off the table? As one American in Moscow noted recently on listserv that I subscribe to, what do the phrases transparency, due process of law, and following established international norms mean when George W. Bush demonstrates that he has no interest in acting out what the U.S. demands the rest of the world do? Clearly, Bush is playing to domestic American opinion. However, his words are heard by the world as well. It is no wonder that the U.S. is accused of saying one thing and doing something completely different. The Russians noticed this as well. Recently, on September 15, Nikolai Petrosha, the director of the Federal Security Services, said that there can be no double standards in the fight to eliminate terrorism. And the FSB, that's the Russian Security Services, is, quote, ready to eliminate, ready to physically eliminate Chechen military commander Shamil Vasayev Vukata. This has had practical consequences on the Russian domestic political scene. The lone Russian politician advocating a political solution to the Chechen conflict Boris Nemtsov of the Union of Right-Wing Forces reversed his positions. On the other hand, if we go it alone, what are the consequences? How many nations can we, can we afford to alienate? I was very pleased last night to see in President Bush's speech his outreach 
to Muslims internationally is attempt to not frame the conflict in that dimension. But as President Bush himself noted, the proof is in the action, not the words. I think on a larger sense, what we're looking at right now is a potential conflict in long-term versus short-term security considerations. In the long term, most would agree that the security of the United States is best enhanced by a world filled with democracies with open markets. In the short to medium term, our concern turns to security from terrorist attacks. And I wonder, and I challenge you to observe as policies emerge in the next weeks and months, how often these two goals will come into conflict with one another, and what is the best way to resolve them? Likewise, on the domestic front, we've seen a rush of policy proposals to aid us in the fight against terrorism. Some of these seem to make complete sense. I don't think anyone in here would be offended by better security at airports. Others, though, may not be so benign. The indefinite detention of non-citizens in time of emergency without presenting any evidence to a judge springs to mind. Again, there's a question of time horizon. We've spent a long time building a society based on civil liberties. And our prosperity as a society is in many ways due to this respect for individual freedom. In the short term, we're scared, and rightfully so. But the question is, what are the long-term implications of these changes? In my opinion, I think it is much harder once you take the gloves off of security forces to put those gloves back on. Keep in mind unintended consequences of policies down the road. Do we really want to live in a world where assassination of political leaders is regarded as a legitimate pursuit of foreign policy goals? In closing, I'd like to just bring up something of a more personal note. I received an email from a friend of mine earlier this week who is a Sikh who grew up in New York City. He wrote, I'm from New York City. My prom was held at the World Trade Center. But now I have to face a threat from two directions, a continued terrorist threat and one from my fellow Americans. We've all been shaken, first by the attacks, and then by the realization that we are less safe than other Americans in the afternoon. Now, in some respects, we've been very fortunate in this regard. Our leaders have certainly gotten out in front of condemning hate crimes on our own soil. But obviously, we're not doing enough. And this is something where I think we can all individually make a huge difference. So thank you for your time. Thank you all. Uh, we're open for questions, and I'd like to hear from you. Well, I just have a comment for Kevin. Um, I just returned from four years in Jordan, and I believe, I don't know for sure, but I think this attack predated the Intifada. I think it took longer term planning than the timing of the Intifada. That's number one. Number two, nothing short of the destruction of the state of Israel itself, I think, would appease these groups of terrorists. Having come from Jordan, on uh, finding the Jordanians very cooperative in stopping the millennium terrorism, I think our best bet is to aim for the reasonable people in the Arab world. Because I will say this, the closer we got to any kind of peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis, the angrier the terrorist groups got. They don't want peace. So I agree with you that the Palestinian situation needs to be addressed, and certainly the American news agencies have a very skewered 
view which they present to the American public vis-a-vis the Palestinian situation. However, having said that, um, I believe also that the answer is not there because, as I said, the groups wishing to disrupt the peace process will continue, no matter how bad it gets. And I don't have the answers to the situation, but as I say, I think that, that this situation predated the Intifada. Thanks. So you, you, you could very well be right. Um, we don't know how long the cooperation has been in planning stages. Um, I would tend, based on what I know, to do this future claim, it's, it's over the Intifada. Coming from Saudi Arabia, though, what we saw out there was, was um, electrifying. Where you got most of the Gulf countries mesmerized by a picture. Do you remember Mohammed Abura? Young Palestinian boy who was machine gunned by the Israelis and his father tried to cover him. That ran virtually nonstop in Riyadh for about 48 hours. Um, it just said that the, you all may have not remember Mohammed Abura. He was a young boy returning home from shopping with his father, and he got caught in a, uh, a um, shootout between Israelis and Palestinians. There's a French film crew there filmed the whole thing. They filmed Mohammed and his father being, being forgive me, lady, murdered by the Israelis. Um, no, they, no, I agree with that. Okay. The, the Saudis, this, this for them was, was the, the, the picture that brought home the Nevada. It was on the front pages of all the newspapers in the Gulf. Um, as I said, it ran such a non-stop in the, um, in the um, uh, on the televisions. We predicted from the embassy and the station in Riyadh that this would be the electrifying moment. This is what would radicalize even the Saudis. Uh, we saw we saw virtually overnight a change in Saudi attitude toward the United States. And Saudi Arabia, as you know, is a very moderate country. And when you get Saudis, as at least two of these pilots were, um, Flying suicide missions. This is something which would have been virtually unheard of a year ago. Now, again, we laid it all on, forgive me for simplifying, um, we laid much of it on the quality of the Israeli overreaction to the reaction to the and how it perceived the systems of States in the, in the Middle East. And obviously, the Palestinian-Israel conflict is, is a major influence. But what about U.S. support to Saudi Arabia or to um, other governments that tend to be relatively impressive when it comes to their disposition? I feel my question. I, I just finished two years in Iraq. My wife and my thirteen-year-old daughter know firsthand about Saudi depression. Um, it's a problem we're going to have to face. You, you, get, you get President Bush complaining about Taliban treatment of women, Taliban restrictions on, on freedom of religion, Taliban restrictions on freedom of the press. You get exactly, you have exactly the same conditions in Saudi Arabia. Sometimes worse, sometimes better. Um, it's not going to resonate well with the Saudis. And the question could have to be if we're willing to send troops to Afghanistan to fight these, these inequities. Are we really going to stand by and see Saudi Arabia commit um, the same acts? Probably. But there's going to have to be some philosophical arrangement beforehand. Thank you. 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 Thank you
Uh, I'd take a comment on a separate issue, uh, and that is regarding the terrorists specifically. Um, the whoever perpetrated this crime did not uh, send a ransom note beforehand saying, unless you do X, we're going to blow up the World Trade Center. They just did it. And I don't think that there is an X that if the United States uh, stops supporting Israel, stops supporting the, the uh, uh, government of Saudi Arabia or other governments, or even withdrew our troops, that the outcome would be okay. Now we'll leave you alone. I think the, the Gold Coast move, this is uh, uh, very emotional and uh, uh, deep-seated, apparently, uh, feeling towards us uh, rather than a rational uh, policy uh, means of achieving policy. It's as nearly as I can tell you. Know, I'm prepared to hear others disagree, but uh, so I don't think that this support specifically for the young uh, government. Uh, is uh, sort of cause and effect if you would do that with the Saudi by some things that I've heard on television. And for me, it seems like in the past 10 days, terrorism has become um, grossly oversimplified as a word, and the people who signify terrorism have become much more concise. I definitely appreciate Professor Tucker's comments about Russia, because I've watched people demonize anyone who fights against the cause in Russia, and I, I, I've seen that, and it, it's disturbing to me. Before we used to have IRA terrorists and Ulster Union as terrorists, and now there is there's um, a setup where you're either with us or against us, and we're all fighting against the same enemy. I'm interested in the panelists' opinions about that. I'm specifically interested in Mr. Tucker's comments on why why George Bush commented on Uzbekistan yesterday, also a country which has got an internal threat to itself, and. Is he saying that if he's seeking their approval, or is he also trying to add that country and that problem into our vocabulary um, as something we're going to have to deal with as we go into Afghanistan? Well, just to take the last part of that, I mean, the best of my understanding is that we're hoping to have Uzbekistan's cooperation. And there's a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of back and forth in the last few days about whether Uzbekistan's cooperation is in has already been uh, assured uh, to the government. There's been some reports in the Washington Post. There's been some denials coming out of Uzbekistan. I don't think it's I don't think it's that we're trying to expand uh, the problem. But I do think that there, one of the terrorist groups you've heard who has been referred to in the media has been based out of Uzbekistan. There's obviously a lot of crossover across borders. Essentially, it has been relatively porous. Um, so I think that's the goal of the president in trying to mention. Afghanistan trying to bring it in. There's a very realistic question that if you're going to put ground troops into Afghanistan, where are those ground troops going to come from? And I'm not sure if the administration wants to put all of its eggs in the Pakistan capacity in that regard. So I think there is a diplomatic effort underway. Um, it does raise a larger question, and this is a debate that's raging in Russia right now. Uh, the Russians have regarded Central Asia as their sphere of influence, and the idea of U.S. troops in Central Asia, Asia is an influence of many in Russia and in Russia's central power. Jack, do you want to say something about uh, th this is Jack Matlock who was ambassador to the Soviet Union when there was a Soviet Union Terrible things have come up I'd like to just make it just a brief comment First of all, how do we define terrorism? To me at least it is the use 
of violence against civilians to achieve a political purpose. And if I read what we're saying, is that kindly we're recognizing that, and that is the enemy. And I would go further myself and say that no purpose. There's no legitimate reason to use violence against civilians. Uh, and uh, that is purposely to achieve the thing. Now, if you put it in that context, then you do have to treat each of these terrorist organizations, whether it be the military ring of the IRA, whether it be those who have protected terrorism in Chechnya, whether it be the Kosovo Liberation Army, which is using terrorist tactics now in Macedonia and had used them before in Kosovo, as movements which must be composed. Now, that's one thing. I think you can define terrorism. And I think, first of all, you have to delegitimize the methods. Now, the second question that comes up, obviously, we could use a lot of discussion of these, is do we protect human rights or do we go after terrorists? I think you can do both, but you have to have the right methods. I don't believe you protect human rights primarily by military force. And I think the only excuse for using military force to protect human rights is to protect human beings, which means willingness to take casualties in an extreme situation. You do not do it by bombing another country and by forcing them into political submission. And thereby becoming the objective allies of a terrorist group, which is precisely what we did in Kosovo. Chechnya. There was never a legitimate reason for the leaders that took over in Chechnya by force, without ever a vote, to fight by military means for independence or anything else. They had autonomy. They had almost complete de facto independence. And then when they won the first battle against Russia, and in effect had a, a promise that could have been, they became a haven of terrorists. By the very same types of terrorist uh, activists that we saw. Now, the Russians have not handled this well, they have been brutal, but I would suggest that our own apparent lack of sympathy for their problem when they were weak, and their own actions in doing such things as bugging Serbia over a legitimate human rights problem and using the wrong methods, have contributed to that. Because in effect we're saying then, look, we can bomb people to bring about protection of human rights as we so define it, but even in your own country, which we recognize is in your own country, you can't. Now, this is what, this contradiction in what they have seen as their attitude gets behind many of the problems. My answer would be, of course we want to protect human rights, but we must recognize that human rights must be protected in every society. You have got to strengthen the will to do so, they cannot be protected from the outside unless you're willing to become the policeman of the world. And if you become the policeman of the world, as by implicitly we did about the time of the cross of a burn bombing, you're going to turn a large numbers of people against you who don't want that. So we have the method, it's a question of method. How much of what we're facing, yes, this is a different war from the Cold War, as Professor Krugman remarked. However, I do see some similarities and some lessons we might have learned from that. One of them is that this is a war like the Cold War, which is not fought primarily by direct military action. I don't think we fully absorb that. 
The last thing we thought of during the Cold War was solving it by direct military action. In fact, most of our policy was devoted to avoiding any military action against the Soviet Union. Were we in favor of human rights? Of course we were. But we told the Baltic states, the independence movements, do not go to violence. You're not going to win if you do it that way. They have a right, perhaps, to, because they've been taken over by force. You've got to do it peacefully. And we're not going to be able to help, except in a general sense. And, you know, they won because they didn't go to violence. So you cannot say that human rights in the long run cannot be protected or national independence uh, obtained by peaceful methods. So in general, I think there are many lessons here which we still have to sort. But it does seem to me that we do not have to consider the fight against terrorism and that activity an enemy of supporting human rights in the ways that it should be supported. First, I want to thank all the panelists who have had everyone very, obviously, easy and long-term evaluation, and I really, really appreciate that. I want to disagree a little bit with what George was saying, that the goalposts will move no matter what we do, no matter what policy policies we implement, there will always be these crazy, you know, there will always be the fundamentalists who will be out there to terrorize us. And I think, first of all, it's a very dangerous way to frame the discourse that those types of people produce terrorists um, no matter what our policies are. And I think that yeah, Kevin made a good point that you know we have some social situations in that program based on US policy and the actions of this. Yeah, I would not characterize the discretion. Uh, if, if that was the impression I was giving, I, I'm sorry that I know they're crazy. Uh, but what I, what I think is that they view us uh, as an enemy, and it's not about that. Seeing us as an enemy stands outside simply one or two of our policies. It's larger than that. I'm, I'm surprised that no one again has mentioned oil. And it seems to me that maybe this is an oversimplification, but our policy, even since the end of World War II, has been a balance of trying to provide low cost energy to the world on the one hand, in a pragmatic sense, and then a moral defense of Israel, human rights, etc., etc. Uh, as things move forward here, how do you see that balance going and can it be maintained? What prospects do you see? <laughs> I have to say, I've been trying to get a little connection on this one. With among other things, solve the problem of what the right one is policy. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm not asking for a price prediction. No, the, the, the funny thing is that aside from the fact that you know, obviously, if somehow this turns into a into a conventional war in the Middle East, which I, I, I I'm. As an actor, can't can't quite figure out how that can happen, but uh, uh, it would have an effect on oil. But this clearly was not about oil. This was not about nothing that we did. Uh, U.S. policy that bore on this scene had anything to do with oil. In fact, if anything was contrary, uh, the, the U.S. support for Israel is is not what we would be doing with oil. We were concerned about. Um, I guess our longstanding support for the Saudi regime has something to do with oil, but. Um, I, 
it's amazing. Actually, I think I think for once we really have to say that, that economics has precious little to do with, with, with what this is all about, the conflict. I mean, the consequences. I mean, I, I, I'm going to try and do the back of the envelope. I, I believe that, that we probably had about uh, $20 billion of material, $20, $30 billion of material damage from the, uh, the terrorist attack and uh, $2 trillion of lost paper wealth in the stock market this week. Uh, to give you some sort of magnitude. So the, the, the knock-on effects are, are dominated by the economics, but the complicated stuff is not to do with it. Can I offer a, a, a nightmare scenario now? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> this, this conflict, this is chasing the bin Laden. Uh, I think the president's been very good at framing it as essentially a criminal issue. What you're seeing now is the Taliban, particularly, trying to frame it as a Muslim issue. Now, that's the message, that's a perception which could resonate among a lot of the Middle East. In the worst case, if we were to go into Afghanistan, if we were to become embroiled in Afghanistan, and nobody, nobody knows better than the CIA how easy it is to tie down a world-class army in Afghanistan with a handful of Afghan fighters. Um, if, if that were to happen, if, the, if what we do in Afghanistan gets framed in religious issues as a Christian-Jewish conspiracy against Muslims, then you could conceivably see governments in Saudi Arabia, the moderate governments, particularly like the Saudis, feel that they have to take some kind of action to show support for the Muslim world. Because the Saudis, keep in mind, the Saudi government does not see itself as a secular government. It's a theocracy. The king does not call himself the king. He is the custodian of the two holy mosques of Islam. As the leader of the Muslim world, as he believes he is, he has to take some sort of action if he sees the Muslim world, the Muslim world being attacked. Would he use the oil weapon again? Probably not. But what, what you might see is in turning the deaf ear to our future pleas and produce more oil. Did that answer your question? I was troubled on the There was some stuff in British papers about the U.S. supposedly uh, talking with uh, Europeans about the post, problems of post Taliban Afghanistan. Any sense of whether that's just. I've heard NPR talking to the former king in Afghanistan. He's about 90, I think. Sean Connery, but. <laughs> there, seems, there seems to be a growing sense that, that the Taliban hold in Afghanistan is weak. That they're holding on, that the power centers remain in the city. There's important to be recently in rural areas of dropping off, and as the, as the exodus continues, there's some thought that possibly along with the people fleeing Afghanistan will go along with support for the Taliban. In that case, you might continue to see the the Taliban system in Afghanistan. But also, you know, somebody, somebody thinking this is what this Taliban government. Sure. Just to throw one thing in there, this is not based on the knowledge of Afghanistan, but one of my understandings of the Taliban and Taliban power has always been that there's a sort of implicit deal that what the Taliban has delivered stability, and that people are willing to put up with some of the more extreme functions of the Taliban. 
because it brought an end to civil war in a large part of the country. And I wonder if, uh, just to sort of follow up on this question, that I wonder if that end of the deal collapses, how strong, if civility starts to go, what is going to be the remaining appeal of the Taliban and how deep loyalty runs. But again, that's just my own personal you know, speculation based on what I've heard. Yeah, I, I want to add a question for uh, Kevin and George. Uh, when I thought about what our response should be, I thought a bit about the first President Bush's careful assembly of a coalition. But I also thought about Adlai Stevenson standing in the UN with pictures of Cuban of, of Russian missiles in Cuba and uh, making it crystal clear that this was not just some fantasy that he was talking about, that these were real things. And what I've noticed, at least it seems to me, is that the trip between suspicion and conviction of bin Laden has been without the release of any public information or information that seemed to be designed to convince people who either need to be convinced or need political reasons to be convinced. And I, I, I wondered, you know, is this asking too much? Is there anything possible or plausible along these lines? Both. It's, it's, it's an excellent question, um, and it's one that we in the intelligence community wrangle with constantly. Um, the, the, the easy solution to all this would be if Bin Laden were to die in a bombing attack. We wouldn't have to worry about exfiltrating or, or putting it on trial. Um, I'm thinking of the Pan Am three suspects with a county on cable cough was two up and I was in Malta when in fact they 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 uh, the Libyan government did offer funding to the police. And it was again one of the nightmare scenarios because suddenly they realized, well okay, we have there's a difference between intelligence proof and 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 criminal proof uh, uh, proof of criminal activities. We in the intelligence community are satisfied that bin Laden behind the attacks, just as we were convinced that the government of Libya was behind Panama 3. But that doesn't necessarily translate into having enough proof to convince a court or a jury. Uh, this is really, I, I, I should say, I'm thinking really about a political court. I mean, if this is not beyond a reasonable doubt. The, the Gilan case is very tough. He is very, very good at hiding his hands, hiding his hands with the groups. Um, we track them we tracked his involvement chiefly by following, following his intents. But in terms of going to this government that government and saying, look, here's a document with Bin Laden's signature on authorizing this attack, or here's a transcript of a telephone conversation in which Bin Laden okays this, this or that operation, I don't know what he's there. Yeah, I would say much the same. Uh, in terms of the ability to track uh, one uh, aspect that's being looked at right now, and I would be actually interested in Paul's uh, ideas about how Paul's thoughts on this, 
certainly uh, there is, seems to be little shortage of people who are willing to carry out attacks. Um, we've lost a, almost 20 in this, in this attack alone. But to, uh, to launch an attack, you need more than the willingness to do it. You need a certain level of support. Now, we're not arguing that a lot of money is involved to buy a few plane tickets and do a little aircraft training. Don't need those multi-millions, but in terms of trying to establish a linkage between perpetrators and the source, uh, efforts are underway to, to do it through uh, uh, financing. Now, what do you think the chances are? Um, it's looking pretty bad. I mean, what I'm getting is that first of all, it's, it's, this was astonishingly cheap. This was not, you know, so the first thought was this is like a drug war, traced through mind laundering. What we're talking about probably. Tens of thousands of tens of thousands, not tens of millions. It's, it's tiny. Um, the second, it turns out, this is completely unknown to me. There's this network of um, uh, sort of informal bankers, particularly uh, I guess uh, South Asians, that, that operate almost like the evil bankers, where it's not you know, pieces of paper and, and uh, uh, stuff over a head wire. But my, my cousin in, uh, in, in, uh, in the Gulf uh, said to give me give money to a guy who produces the following password. And that's going to be extremely hard and not good with conceivably. But it, it, you know, even people have been saying, even if the rumor short selling took place, even if this really was a hedge fund terrorist, it might be possible to track it for some of the letters. And, and the, the finance of the operation itself was impossible. This was so low tech. In a way that just sort of slid under our financial radar. Question for Kevin. Uh, if you look at our activities in the Middle East over the last few years, uh, support of Israel, the troops in Saudi Arabia, and the military operations in Iraq, it seems likely that at least one, maybe all three of these, played into the motivations behind this attack. So, and I got the sense from you in your remarks that there's a need to completely rethink our policy towards the Middle East, specifically as you mentioned with Israel. You think I haven't heard any sense that there's any motivation in Washington to do that? What do you think about the, the ability of Washington to take that time off? Of Today, virtually zero. Uh, you know, even George will agree. Even at the height of the things seemed about as bad as it possibly could. And Ariel Sharon in 1500 was best security friend. Sort of walked through Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, the mood in Washington was, was not to was not to, to criticize Israel. You know, we've been it's a matter of long-standing U.S. policy. We will back Israel, and that, that's that's not going to change, particularly these these days. Um, from what we saw, in, George, step in on your views from from George. What we saw in Saudi Arabia uh, regarding Operation Southern Watch and feelings about U.S. troops. In the Holy Land, it was an irritant. Okay, um, you got the occasional, really a crazy, crazy man with a Kalashnikov shooting up, shooting in the direction of the U.S. military force. But we never saw any terrorist operations launched with this as their primary motivation. It just, it just didn't have that 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 visceral kind of reaction on most of the Arabs out there. Like the, like the, 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 the
you think that there should be any sort of muzzling of media um, in light of that fact? Uh, and also in the coming months, as who knows what's going to happen in the Middle East, do you think there will be any sort of government crackdown on media coverage in the area? No, I don't think there should be. Um, absolutely not. That's me, Kevin Lindsay, personally. Um, CIA is a policy question, of course, CIA is a policy. Um, <laughs> I, I really can't answer the rest of your question, but there will be a crackdown on media coverage. Uh, I really can't say. We'll push senior videos and views of media and military operations about the storm, the other storm, uh, related to saying that they go into Afghanistan and get Josh? Uh, I was wondering if we could hear a little bit about the other side of the coin. Uh, all the panelists were basically cautioning against ways in which we could overreact, things we could do wrong. That's understandable given the tendency of policy, but clearly the government is picking a policy that is in between doing too much and too little. What are some of the dangers of doing too little? What would be too little? Uh, I mean, I don't believe that this is just Reaction, ignorant reaction, playing ignorant government uh, public opinion. There are some real risks to doing too little. What does the panel think they Josh? Um, I think, first of all, in response to some of the questions that have been said lately, I mean, on the one hand, we, we have to be very cognizant of you know, what is going on in world opinion and, and how American, how the conflict is allowed to develop. On the other hand, when we don't want to send a message that if you want to change U.S. foreign policy, the way to do it is to crash planes into buildings. Um, and that's, that's a danger, too. I mean, so obviously, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons that people on this side of the table right now are talking about implications of action as opposed to implications of inaction is that on the basis of what we heard last night, action is coming. So I think we're trying to talk in that regard. But I mean, I do think that there are, I think you're, the, the questioner is absolutely right, there are uh, consequences of inaction, and I think you don't want to send this particular, you know, that particular type of message out there. In my personal opinion, I think the way we conduct what action is coming is exactly what you're saying. There is a continuum of what you can do. And I think framing in the way that President Bush was trying to do last night, but framing this constantly coming back to this reference that this is not a conflict against Islam is a very smart move. But that then has to be backed up by actions on the ground. I'm not a military expert. Maybe there are people here in the audience who can talk more about this, but just from conversations with colleagues, I mean, there's a big, there will be a big difference between special forces operations that go in and clean out camps when there's evidence of camps um, and carpet bombs that ends up killing a lot of innocent people, that ends up killing people fleeing, that ends up killing refugees. There certainly will be a greater public opinion. And this question of rule of law that comes up, I think that my phrase is a crucial one, because the United States does push in the long term. It wants governments out there that observe the rule of law. And there is a danger to proceeding on actions without sort of trying to justify without backing up with any sort of evidence. And the conflicts and the complexities is, are very real of how you do produce this kind of evidence. But nevertheless, I think when you talk about these in-between the policies, there is something in between between going out with full-scale military force and just basically saying you're with us or you're against us, do what we, you know, take what we do, and sort of trying to produce some sorts of justification. How to walk that is, I think, a delicate title which my colleagues here can comment more on. Sir? Does this strengthen or weaken the case for spending tens of billions of dollars on an A-time missile shield 
<laughs> Anyone else want to? Which country? Austria. Austria, okay. Um, appears to be keeping the exceptional approval ratings of residents up. Um, if that is the actual main objective, um, what other ways are there short of, or if the US doesn't succeed in capturing um, Bin Laden, how can the objective be reached? If that is not the main objective, what is? Do you see um, any concrete goals? Do you see any strategies? I don't think that's the goal. Um, I, I really don't. No doubt there's been a political system, so no doubt he is concerned about his approval rating. I think the president and the government sincerely want to prevent this from ever happening again. Um, And visitor from our fair shores, you, you've seen America at its worst. You, this has never happened to us before. The, 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 the fall of 60, 60, 333 dead Americans um, is something which has which never happened to us. We can't afford to let it happen ever, ever again. I think right now, I'll give the benefit of the doubt, this is the sum total of George Bush's plan is to, prevent, to make sure this never happens again. Approval ratings, I think. Even George Bush would be not would not be crass enough to be seriously concerned about approval ratings right now because he got them. Maybe I should say something. I, um, there certainly were uh, the uh, Washington Post had an editorial uh, a couple days ago about Captain Gaines' tax cut, which I, I thought a brilliant headline, which was no hitchhikers. Uh, and there certainly were are a number of people who would like to hitchhikers here, um, and some of them are inside the administration. I have no, you know, uh, 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 I think there are good and bad angels within the administration of uh, trying on this. Um, but I think the thing to say, before you get too cynical, is that suppose somebody else, so suppose that Alan Moore was in there, would he not be also seeking some kind of uh, retaliatory strike? What, what could any administration do? It has to do something. It cannot. Uh, and that's, not, that's not just cynical seeking approval rates. So you've got to do something. Uh, and no matter, even, even if you think that that's entirely the wrong thing to do, I think realistically it has to do something. Okay. So I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I've been pretty hard to break on these guys. Uh, and it will be again, but uh, should be totally something. I'd also add that this is a very complicated time. 
we are a democracy. Many people feel very, very strongly that America and its symbols of openness, democracy, and deliberation have been attacked. There is a common allegiance to these things, but very severe disagreements about what they mean. And that while I mean, I, I mean as I, I'm a card-carrying, indeed, board member of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, and I worry that this is a time when people whom I regard as the enemies of civil liberties will hitchhike. But I also think that it's a time when people will necessarily be thinking very, very hard about what the proper balance is between security and freedom and that it's that there ought to be a vigorous debate about such issues as national identity cards, etc., etc. And that to expect people to abandon their political beliefs and abandon political struggle and merely to seek the common good is to forget what democracies are about. Okay. Josh? Uh, yeah, I'll make my comments as well. I, I stood in this auditorium on Tuesday in the afternoon when we had our first meeting here, very frightened that we would carry out some sort of action just merely to satisfy our need to act um, and nervous about that possibility. And I remember when Jim came in and said there are rockets going off in Kabul right after that meeting, we thought, wow, they really, you know, they needed to act, they needed to do something to the American public and make bombs. And it turned out they had it. And I have been cautiously optimistic as each day has gone by. This goes back to the last question on the continuum of what are the actions you can do in response to that. In my head, you know, each day that goes by is less likely that we're reacting to this visceral need to act to satisfy the American public, and more likely that the action that's forthcoming is going to be designed to achieve some goal in preventing this action from ever happening again. Now, I, you know, what happens this weekend? I don't know what any of us know right now, and it may be that we're being overly optimistic, and there was a big logistics problem involved in this too. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think there, you know, the, I think there is there are things to be pleased about, and there are things, caution, there are reasons to think that people are thinking these questions through, and you do start to see, um, you are starting to see comments from policymakers in Washington making this paper, a big article, in the, you know. Side of the Times about it's just about that Afghanistan does not open itself up to carpet bombing, that there are not many uh, high value targets in Afghanistan. Sometimes, you know, I personally, you know, you start thinking, well, we know there are a lot of high profile targets we can bomb in Iraq, that's, that's a better option there. But I do think that we've seen a lot of caution, and we have seen there was undoubtedly temptation to act much faster. So there is something, if you're concerned about the motivation demonstration, I think there's a lot to be pleased about over the past few I'd like to make a comment about war. Uh, this word is in use quite a bit, and the problem is simply that we have received a blow and a pain 
that can only be associated with an extreme word like war, but you don't have an opponent that matches that description or that model. And so uh, with Paul, I mean, there's a sense that we have to do something, but we don't have a something or someone to do it to that is, is clearly defined. So, so it's not parallel to Pearl Harbor in any way, shape, or form in that respect. And I think we're starting, I think part of the delay may be in trying to resolve this discrepancy between the, the degree of pain that we've suffered, which is extreme, and the lack of a, a clearly uh, defined source of that. Somebody, uh, I want people we haven't heard from. And I went that, okay, you, you're, that's fine. I have no short term memory. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for a U.S. response that's satisfying enough before 
you know, we do start to lash out in some other way or show greater I just have a quick response is that that very much depends on the kind of leadership the president gives us. I, I, just, I, just, I, I just remember in, in my when I was taking an undergraduate history course uh, that um, World War One for the United States was a very bad internal political effect because it was our participation was over so soon. We got ourselves all you know, jazzed up and ready and, and, and then Although it was terribly bloody, it was, it was gone. And we had all this war fever and, and no obvious opponent. And, and a lot of you know, the, the Red Scare, Palm uh, Raids, there were a lot of bad things happening. Here where we had no uh, obvious target, or stirring up a lot of war fever with no, no enemy in sight. I don't agree about the domestic politics. You know, some of the, the White House, the top leaders of Congress have behaved and have reset with all the right words. Uh, people not that far from, from positions of influence are such a pretty bad thing. Some recent quotes from Giselle I think the war terminology, we have, I mean, I'd be interested in hearing other people's feedback on this as well, but it seemed to me that there was a decision made. Uh, I don't know if it was an individual decision or a collective decision, but we went to that terminology very quickly. Um, this could have been framed differently, right? We could have been talking about a tragedy, a national disaster. Um, so I throw that out there as, as a, you know, as part of consequences of policies of action that we begin to discuss on this. Right? I think it's a very, I think you can ask your question on the domestic front, you can ask, but also ask your question on the international front. How much uh, frustration will there be over policies that admittedly, as everyone's saying right now, are going to take a long time and not have clear, visible results. I think you know, the country, the desert storm, got used to this you know, incredible rebuild of the force, and then you go in and you win, and then it's over very quickly. Um, to the administration's credit, though, I think they are trying to lay the groundwork for that um, as part of their adopting this terminology. Everyone's talking about this being a longer and protracted struggle, but I think your question is an excellent one. Can you speak up a little? Sorry. It's an interesting comment that Professor Kimball was going to about the change in terminology from uh, disaster to war. I think that did happen rather well. I think it actually happened within the same almost 24 hours of the event. But uh, Joe brought up something a little while ago. He mentioned exit strategy um, regarding any sort of military operation, and that's sort of a question I have. Um, I'm not normally prone to quoting George W. Bush, but I was listening to NPR, and apparently he's uh, made a comment that a system is saying that $10 million missile that hit a $10 tent. What I was wondering is what does the U.S. do if the military political objective is not achieved and even though I did listen to the President's comments last night, I, I, don't, I still don't think they're specific uh, whether they're to um, go into Afghanistan and capture and kill and someone. But how do we leave Central Asia without getting into an open and civil disputes or civil war with the Taliban and with other developing states? What I heard last night was the search on the willingness to get embroiled with the Taliban. 
unwillingness to hand over uh, UBL is, uh, has placed them in the shambles. Um, as far as an exit strategy, I mean, you know, certainly uh, the Russian experience has to be looked at with some trepidation. Uh, uh, we won't be facing uh, an enemy that is so well backed as, as the Russians did. <laughs> 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 yeah, but you had said at one point that maybe you thought, I think you said about 80% that we could get rid of perhaps 80%, but um, I think still just as a citizen, it, it is so frightening to say, well, um, what would must prevent is this ever happening again? And yet, what we read about, the cells are everywhere, um, they're hiding out in you know, various countries, um, how do you prevent against it? Well, you, you, you don't. I mean, it's like inventing a bird here that the squirrels will not get into it. It's possible. The cells are out there, and, and these aren't like paramilitary cells either. More like, it's often more like special groups. In some cases, they'll work themselves up into a frenzy and decide to go do something. Uh, if you take away the Laden, though, if you take away somebody who has personal control over a hell of a lot of money, and you take away someone who is a very charismatic leader. Okay, you, to, you, sort of, you sort of deliver a gut blow to the whole terrorist movements around the world. There aren't that many people anymore willing or able to step in and replace them. I mean, that's a lieutenant, but they don't have the charisma, and it's not clear to me or to anybody that they're going to have the money. State terrorism, state support for terrorism is on the decline. I would almost argue that it's gone. So, absent somebody like Bin Laden, you think we had a very real chance that there is simply nobody left to support these movements anymore. Now, you're never going to be able to stop attempting a day from mixing fertilizer with kerosene out there he did on his own and, and, and lighting a few. It's, it's never going to happen. What you may see with, with the arrest and incarceration of Bin Laden is probably not, not what an end to major terrorist operations around the world. Uh, I would agree on some points and disagree on others. I mean, I think that the point that, that uh, Kevin's making on the financing is, a, is very important. Uh, yeah, despite the fact that this particular operation may not require tens of millions, tens of thousands may have been enough. Uh, tens of thousands have been many of these societies would have been one of the people that think was sending homes money from driving a taxi cab to so, uh, tens of thousands of people is a lot of money. And as I argued with the outset, I don't think you'll see this exact kind of uh, operation again. 
of the danger of something uh, at a higher level, biological, chemical, this would require a lot of resources behind it. You know, that's not something that tens of thousands of dollars is going to get you. So if you were able to cut off the financing, you would have had a significant success. So I mean, I agree with you that. So, uh, the other aspect is, uh, is the question of state-sponsored terrorism, which is something actually I have a fair bit of experience with having handled the Iran account for a while. Uh, I agree that it's on a decline, and I think that if there's a, a sort of a missed opportunity here to do too to little, it's, this could be a very good chance to really put an end to state-sponsored terrorism. Um, if, uh, if we play our cards right, this is the example that we can hold out and say we are not tolerating any state-sponsored So if you lose the, the individual with a lot of money, the state with a lot of money, then terrorist attacks will continue because they will be one-offs and relatively what we just saw on a small scale. Can I just say one thing about the exit strategy question yeah. as well? Um, I think it's a, it's a crucial importance um, as we look down the road to see what's going to be coming in the future. Um, after the Gulf War, there were overtures made to the Kurds to rise up, and eventually didn't end up coinciding with our, with our exit strategy, and there was quite a bit of conversation in the community for the final day. If we go in to this area of the world, the stakes are even higher terms of what you need to say. Right now, you have a situation where you have six nuclear powers, conceivably, who are interested in this, and they all seem to be pretty much on the same side of the issue. If we go in and the government of Pakistan is destabilized to the point where it falls after we leave, that is a real serious question that needs to be considered in terms of exit strategy here. If we go in and further destabilize the southern edge of the former Soviet Union, and you end up with the line coming in and coming out, but you have remnants of Taliban, you have Afghanistan collapsing into a civil war that spreads north and, and also spreads into Pakistan, that's a dangerous situation. And the consequences of leaving that to smolder on its own afterwards could be much, much more serious than things that we faced before. So I think this is something that we do have to think about. Again, one of the points I'm just trying to make is the long-term consequences of some of these actions that are going to be taking place. And I think now is the time to be thinking about these things and I'm hopeful that people aren't thinking about them, but they're serious. Okay. Uh, the discussion of exit strategy. <laughs> Say, I'd like one last question from somebody we haven't heard from. Okay. Maybe this uh, is a little bit out of the scope of this discussion, but it seems to me that we can focus very much on the United States and our response comes from this country. I would like to hear your opinion on what, what is the situation like, what is the, the, um, what's the assessment of the situation like in the countries that are around Afghanistan, for example, Iran, Iraq, what does it feel like for them? I mean, this is all from the American perspective. What's the, what's the Middle Eastern perspective on this whole issue, especially on the question of harboring terrorists, which always comes up. Well, first thing I'd say, in terms of the least uh, reaction, I'd like to, to make a comment to CNN uh, broadcast the video of the uh, Palestinians dancing in the street. And uh, I have many friends in that part of the world who contacted me and said, you know, that, that's true. Uh, there was a 
disinformation that it was uh, old footage, and that's not the case. But there was, in fact, also uh, Martians in solidarity in support of the United States. Of course, that didn't show up on the, on the cameras. And over a thousand people signed the films, both in Jordan and the embassy. So uh, I think, uh, you know, one of the, the, the least, certainly the, the majority, I think, are very sympathetic with the, the, the suffering that we've gone through. Even those who may not like our policy uh, don't want it to be attacked. Uh, as far as Iran and Iraq, um, you know, Iran is uh, not sympathetic with uh, the Taliban at all. The Taliban, uh, during the course of their uh, power, managed to kill them for any diplomats, so there's not a very good relationship there. Uh, with Iraq, I think, um, and I think here's what Kevin would say, but I suspect that the leadership, not the people, uh, the leadership probably uh, dance and celebrate because anything that hurts us. No, I would, I would agree. I mean, Saddam Hussein is not a country under lock and key. There is no threat to Saddam Hussein. Um, Iran, as George said, Iran has never really supported the Taliban, never really supported bin Laden. It's a, it's a Shia Sunni kind of thing. It's a racial thing. Um, there are a lot of Arab governments out there, though, who have been ignoring this issue, ignoring the issue of extremism. Um, knowing very well they themselves may fall victim to the, the finger that points to us to easily try out one of them. And I would argue that some of the governments in Saudi Arabia in particular are as afraid of the effects of this as we are. Um, you have a lot of turmoil in the Middle East. There's a lot of a lot of the Muslim dispossessed out there. Unemployment is high. Um, the modern world is sweeping in on these traditional societies at speed in which they are not comfortable. There's a certain visceral wish to return to the old ways. Um, and this is, it makes the appeal to extremism very appealing. Now, if this fight were about to have in Afghanistan, as I said earlier, it gets translated into, into a religious context in which you have um, Christians and Jews, how you would see our forces against Muslims. <laughs> And you had a number of moderate Arab governments who weren't reacting properly. You could see some polarization of the dispossessed in these countries, particularly in the Persian Gulf, and you might conceivably see some political movements. Now, by and large, Jordan, please feel free to disagree. Um, by and large, the Gulf Arabs, particularly, which is a pretty wide area of expertise, are politically passive. They're relatively apolitical. Um, they're relatively comfortable. But again, during the Chicago for the first time, we, we saw we saw political movements. We saw strikes. We saw flag burnings. We saw demonstrations in downtown which were really This has what's going on right now. It has the potential to be much worse. Okay. Now you're going to have you're going to have Saudi friends attacking Muslims in Afghanistan. Saudi friends attacking some of the modern kinds of fellow The potential, potential for real problems to the modern Arab governments is, is there. Okay, any final words from... Well, I really want to thank you all for a very, very thoughtful hour and a half, and particularly to thank our panelists.